Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in smoky, cloudy Berkeley, California this morning. And as always, I am joined by... Uh, Bob Bozenko from uh, the home of the U.S. Taliban, Texas. So uh, it's always good to have another show. And we always start by thanking our loyal fans and listeners and viewers and the M19 Brigade. Um, If you're watching on YouTube, please click that button to subscribe and give us a thumbs up and comment. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or any of those other platforms, uh, do the same. Rate and review, subscribe, tell your friends, wake up your neighbors and tell them to listen and, and uh, you know, help us spread the word because we have on really great guests all the time. Today we have two uh, really awesome people to talk to. So um, we hope you continue to support us and follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else. And, you know, keep listening and sharing and, give us feedback and rate and review and do all that kind of stuff that people beg you to do when they're on scrappy little lefty social media. Yeah. And if you uh, really like our content, then we ask you to donate and support the green and red podcast. And there's two ways to do that. You can go to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button to make a one-time donation, or you can become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. And, uh, and become a recurring donor. That's where our M19 Brigade is. Thanks to our small but mighty base of donors, which have supported us over the last year and a half, and many of them since the beginning. Uh, and now I'm going to move into today's episode. Uh, and just to give a little bit of a episode intro and a background, we've already done a couple of shows this year on Line 3. Uh, I've actually been up there twice since the, over the summer, and we did, two shows, we did a show after each trip. Um, but the fight against Line 3 is continuing. There's still escalating actions in Minnesota. I think at this point, over 1,000 have been arrested, but more importantly, we've seen police escalation using rubber bullets, tear gas. I saw where they used pain compliance on, a, um, on an action last week. And then last weekend, 70 people were arrested rather violently at Governor Tim Waltz's mansion in the Twin Cities. Uh, And then another step, which has been an interesting development this week, is the United Nations issued a letter, uh, which is a a rare thing from what they say, to the U.S. government regarding the human rights abuses of Anishinaabe people uh, by the Minnesota police, by the Minnesota state. And so today we're going to be coming at this from a little bit of a different angle, and we're going to be talking about police surveillance and harassment of water protectors and the role that the oil company that's building the pipeline Enbridge has played in this. Um, And then we're also gonna talk about some recent developments of what the state is doing to try and, uh, I guess you could say, repel um, uh, information gathering about what they're actually up to. And so with that, we're excited to have two guests with us, uh, Charlotte Grubb and Will Parrish. Uh, Charlotte is a freelance researcher, writer, and climate justice organizer. Her work focuses on stopping fossil fuel projects and creating a just transition that centers decolonization and building power outside of state institutions. She is currently based in New Mexico. And then Will is an investigative reporter whose work is rooted in traditions of muckraking journalism. His reporting has appeared in The Intercept, The Guardian, The Nation, 
uh, East Bay Express, Counterpunch, Shadowproof, and other online and print venues. Uh, Will is also a grad student at University of California at Santa Cruz. So Will and Charlotte, welcome to Green and Red. Thanks, happy to be here. Hey, great yep. to be here, thank you. Yeah, excited to have you all on. Um, maybe, maybe just to give a, a little bit uh, more context, can you tell us a, a, a bit about the sort of relationship between the police and Enbridge, maybe the feds, in regards to like pipeline protests in Minnesota around Line 3? Well, yeah, and the uh, policing um, operation at Line 3 is notorious in that Enbridge is actually directly funding the police uh, in Minnesota. They have an escrow account that was approved by the Public Utilities Commission in Minnesota um, as part of the permit for the project that allows or actually requires Enbridge to uh, reimburse certain costs um, of the police operation. Last I heard that Enbridge had doled out well over $2 million, mostly to local sheriff's departments as reimbursements for uh, overtime, equipment, things like that, you know, involvement in this, in this very large police response to line three, you mentioned that there's over a thousand people arrested. And, you know, so it's like, you know, when people are getting arrested, they're getting arrested by cops paid by the corporation that they're, that they're opposing during the course of engaging in those protests. Um, also, you know, recently, Aline Brown at The Intercept revealed some emails that show that Enbridge has actually provided training to the police. The police have provided intelligence on, on Line 3 opponents to Enbridge, and that included a list of names of people who attended a meeting. Uh, so The Intercept just published that last Friday. So, uh, you know, it's like a very close collaboration. I, I see it as part of a larger trend in, in these um, pipeline struggles that happen in predominantly rural areas with where there's small sheriff's departments responding to these protests. And then uh, they get into partnerships with, with the corporations building the projects that provide them a lot of resources. And in some, some cases, the corporations themselves have very sophisticated surveillance operations that they're engaging in. Um, you know, such as, you know, I, I was involved in reporting on the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and looking at a paramilitary corporation called Tiger Swan that, that uh, you know, was formed as part of sort of, uh, it was formed by former special forces operatives who had been active in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and then decided to privatize their services, market their services to the military um, in the Middle East, and then came came back to the U.S. and and sold their services in terms of surveillance and you know policing, counterintelligence to the company building the pipeline. So there's a sort of a, a trend that uh, has emerged in these pipeline protests of, of very close public-private police collaboration. And but you know this is the most I'd say. Um, explicit case of uh, a corporation funding the police or privatizing the police through its money um, that we've seen. And, you know, as far as the role of feds that you asked about, Scott, um, yeah, I mean, as you as you well know, the uh, Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol have been a part of the police response. You know, they've had surveillance planes and helicopters and things like that. 
out there. So, you know, this is uh, sort of this integrated police operation that involves local sheriffs, state troopers, and that kind of thing, um, Enbridge itself, and then, you know, different federal agencies. I think there's still a lot that is yet to be revealed about the role that federal agencies, or, you know, the FBI and, and entities like that are, are playing though. Yeah, I was actually out there the day that the Border Patrol helicopter buzzed the one big, you know, 200 person arrest action at a, a pump station in Hubbard County, Minnesota. That was one of the days I was there. Mm, wow. Um, uh, Charlotte, you do quite a bit of, you've been doing quite a bit of research on the behind the scenes sort of relationships between the, the police and, and Enbridge and, and other institutions. I'm kind of curious, you know, we'll mention Tiger Swan. I'm wondering if we're seeing any uh, indication of, of private security being involved here, or if it's just a, it, or it's just basically Enbridge buying the police to be their private security. Yeah, we've seen, um, Will and I had worked on something, I think it was January, 2019 in the intercept and there, um, you know, we know that Dell and Securitas um, are involved. And then there's also another PR firm called Off the Record Strategies. And so the people like there's this guy, Jeff Berkowitz, who runs that and it's, they really like control the narrative and are kind of behind the scenes in this private security relationships. Um, and so they're there. I haven't done anything or found anything more recently about those relationships. Um, but yeah, that was from a couple of years ago when things were kind of gearing up and they were sort of like building the infrastructure behind the scenes. That's mostly information sharing about people. And that can include, um, you know, really just sharing information about people who are exercising their First Amendment right um, and really just giving their information to the, the opponent. Um, yeah. We did find that there's a company called Raven Executive Security that is uh, contracting with uh, Enbridge. And, you know, we found evidence that they are you know, working very closely with, with the cops. Um, you know, kind of a model where... Um, the private security entity is collecting information, whether that's like open source information online or whether, you know, through sending drones into camps or whether that's through potentially having infiltrators going into different spaces themselves. We, we don't have evidence of that directly, the last part I mentioned, but the other parts we do. Uh, and, you know, they provide it to the police and, and the police um, you know, suck it up or hoover it up into this big dragnet of information that they're collecting so um so yeah we do we did find that raven executive security this company based out of michigan is is part of a collaboration with the police but like you said scott i think that <clears throat> to a big extent what's happened is that um ember just privatized the police so i'm not i'm not sure if we'll we'll ever find out that there was an operation like the one at standing rock where tiger swan um was so centrally involved in everything. Um, I, you know, maybe this is a case where it's just more efficient to just buy the police directly. Um, and so while there are private security entities involved, um, my sense, and I think Charlotte would probably agree with this, is that it's not um, a situation where private security entities are you know, dominating or shaping the operation as much as it's standing around. This is funny. Yesterday, a, a history professor is actually teaching about the state's role in suppressing industrial 
labor and industrial strikes in the late 19th century. And I even said this stuff's still going on. So this is a great example of that. Um, you said the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission approved of the state paying these, these private firms. Was there much public debate on that? Was there any public debate on that? Were any, was anybody really aware of it? Does the Utilities Commission just as that kind of an autonomous group didn't have to go through the legislature or anything like that? Right. My, my understanding of what happened is at the very end of the permitting process, that was the final condition that was added to the permit during a Public Utilities Commission meeting. Um, and it was added by a commissioner who was retiring. And that was the very last thing he ever did during his tenure there. And yeah, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't any review by a legislative body. Um, Bob, like, you know, like you suggested, like, well, what if, what if a legislature reviewed this? Well, yeah, it's a, the Public Utilities Commission is, operates pretty autonomously from, from everything that we actually see um, from any oversight by, um, by public officials that are more accountable, right? So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a situation where basically these five appointed public utilities commissioners um, green-lighted this. Uh, you know, obviously these people are appointed by Governor Tim Waltz or, you know, or I guess in some cases the previous governor. Um, and so you do have to ask, okay, why is Tim Waltz appointing people? Uh, why isn't Tim Waltz appointing like Winona LaDuke or someone like that? Why is Tim Waltz appointing people who are like, you know, just going to green light whatever Enbridge wants? And so, you know, that's a bigger question. But yeah, the Public Utilities Commission, um, you know, green lighted all of these things that we're seeing. And I will just interject for a second. When those permits were approved by the Utility Commission, um, they were really contentious hearings. And, you know, one of the commissioners said that, like, quote, she feels like she had a gun against her head or something with those words by Enbridge, like that she was kind of cornered into approving this. Um, and there was like, I think, yes, yeah, 68,000 people, citizens and tribal folks that were opposed to this on the record. And so, um, you know, it, it was not approved without people being involved and opposing it. Yeah, in uh, your the article that was put out in August, there's a, a lot of talk about the Minnesota Fusion Center, which fusion centers have been around at least since 9-11, if not before. And I'm wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about what a, a fusion center is and then have a couple of follow-up questions on that. Yeah. So yeah, fusion centers are a um, basically repository of intelligence information that is supposed to be accessible to police entities at multiple levels and that, that also involves private uh, private corporations, um, you know, being a part of this intelligence gathering apparatus. And, and it was set up yeah, I, th I think there were forerunners to fusion centers um, that existed before 9-11, but um, after 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was formed, and the Department of Homeland Security, one, you know, one of the charges of, of that new agency at the time was to set up these fusion centers and in collaboration with state governments around the country, so um, as a way of improving <clears throat> information sharing. Um, as uh, you know, basically with an explicit counterterrorism mission, and so uh, so it's important to keep in mind that these these entities were justified on the grounds that they would help thwart terrorist attacks, such as the one uh, on on nine eleven. 
um, and I'm just using the language of of the state at this point to describe these things because you know this is this is how they described it at the time, and you know obviously as with so many government entities, especially policing entities, there's mission creep that happens, and in effect we have like these 75 or so different uh, interagency intelligence collection operations around the country that in practice have ended up gathering tons of information on uh, people engaged in political protests and various political activities and uh, feeding it to private entities in some cases, uh, feeding it to you know local cops who don't have the kinds of resources to do this kind of work that fusion centers have. And so you know an important part of the police and the pipeline protests has has been for these fusion centers, you know which were created for counterterrorism, quote unquote. Um, to you know, gather information on people. Um, you know, at, at Standing Rock, I found that the Fusion Center had created this this chart linking individuals to each other who involved in Standing Rock protests that included information of like who's in a relation romantic relationship with whom, uh, who rode in a car with whom to a protest, uh, who you know who organized whom to come out there. You know, this kind of stuff, um, and. <clears throat> You know, it was clear that they had collected information from all kinds of different police agencies and, and put it into this this links chart. Um, and you know, just kind of a sidebar: the person who put that document together as has actually moved over to Minnesota uh, is a security uh, intelligence analyst for a private corporation now. And uh, documents obtained by a Unicorn Riot show that this guy said you know offered to the minnesota cops hey i've got all my files from standing rock still i'm happy to share all the information i have on the protesters who are out there um so you know this information is travels around people leave the fusion centers they go work in the private sector they still retain the information apparently so it's just like this complete free-for-all of you know using um government spying powers to collect this information and just share it around wantonly um, from from everything we've seen um so yeah fusion centers um you know they're just big intelligence collection entities and what we've experienced with line three is that they have created a policy where they refuse to disclose information under the minnesota data practices act about what they're what they're up to there because they're afraid of the kind of scrutiny that they've gotten in other states, and they're trying to keep, you know, politically sensitive information about what they're up to with policing, um, you know, uh, from from getting out. And so, um, yeah, they're one of the players out there. They've been referred to as the keepers of information on the line three protests by, you know, one of the sheriff's offices in a document we saw. And it's it's hard to know exactly what they're up to, and it's it's a big problem. In addition to working with the, the state government and, and being approved by it, is there any funding coming from the state for these these private groups? Is there any kind of financial involvement as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, there is. You know, the So the federal government provides some of the funding. The state government provides a lot of the funding as well. And in the case of Minnesota, um, during the George Floyd uprising, Governor Tim Waltz actually tried to significantly increase the funding for the Fusion Center, um, you know, basically as a, as a way to rely on the Fusion Center for more intelligence about about protests. And so, you know, that goes to show that you know 
uh, state level entities like the governor's office are also very invested in these in these fusion centers. Hey, you're listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast with Bob and Scott. And we want to thank all of you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. As always, we really appreciate all the support. Um, you can uh, subscribe on YouTube or you can listen to us on any of the major podcast platforms and you can subscribe there too. You can rate and review us, which would be really great because uh, those algorithms help us get more listeners. And then you can also follow us uh, on our webpage at greenandredpodcast.org. And then we're on all the social media, Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and everything else. And if you really like us, you can help us by donating and becoming a supporter of the Green and Red Podcast. And so you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast, or you can go to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And every dollar helps. We have a small, uh, slight overhead. And so any support helps uh, Green and Red Podcast bring you new episodes all the time. And just to go back to the, the Data Practices Act for a minute, you know, the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA's Data Practices Act, you know, it's those are those are tools that we use to, you know, for transparency, for you know, lack of a better word. And I'm, uh, Charlotte, I know you do a, a lot of work around that. I'm wondering if you could, you know, speak to that for a moment. Just how how in the past that's been actually a pretty effective tool for, you know, movements. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because <clears throat> as we speak about these public records, I think you're exactly right. I mean, public records are supposed to be this sort of like transparent web that can allow us to hold public officials accountable. And, you know, that fits in the context with elected officials of campaign contributions and things like that. But for, you know, public officials where they don't receive campaign contributions, um, being able as just a public citizen, um, to be able to view their communications is supposed to allow us to view whose interests they're beholden to. That's why these laws exist. And um, what we're seeing now, either through Will's recent story with the Fusion Center, you know, we're, we're like, he's running into walls trying to get that information. Um, and I've been running into walls trying to get public records information through exorbitant fees. Um, you know, then we don't have access to that transparency. And that's a really big issue in terms of like democracy and accountability. I mean, it's really hard to have accountability if you don't know what's going on. And I mean, yeah, we can get into the cost of records if you want, because that's, um, you know, that's a really big way that they, that's a really big loophole that I'm, I'm experiencing right now that they're using to stop us from seeing information. What, what are they asking? What kind of money are they asking? For, for these yeah <laughs> glad you asked um so i mean to give an example in uh carlton county which is you know a, a county along the pipeline that's been pretty active with protests um i was quoted eleven thousand dollars just over eleven thousand dollars for a request and in a, a, in a, a single a single request it's a single request but it has multiple parts so there's like communications with 
X, Y, Z, and then a second section with keywords. Um, but to give you an idea, I filed an identical request in a different county and had to pay $70, $70. And, you know, a pretty much identical request, just different people, but same keywords, same scope, same time frame, everything. Uh, and Carlton is over 11,000. And so this is how they stop, you know, us being able to hold them accountable. And this is how we can't see how they're communicating and like the questions that you're asking about, you know, how involved is Enbridge? How does the fusion center work? How, like who's exactly communicating to who, what information are they sharing? All this is in public records that um, are becoming increasingly difficult to access. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> neither me nor will have, we're also a legal team, you know, we don't have resources. Um, so luckily a lawyer friend helped me write or pretty much wrote a legal letter to combat that. And it's just, it's really hard with being under-resourced to combat something like an $11,000 fee, um, you know, and that's in one of eight counties. So it can be really tricky to get past the fees. And, you know, as you mentioned, Scott, public records have been really helpful in the past. That's how, you know, Will and Aline Brown were able to crack open so many issues with Tiger Swan and lessons that we learned from DAPL. It can be a really valuable tool. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really big threat to transparency and, and like accountability if we can't have that. So are they basically using tactics like like uh, cost, or are they in some cases just simply rejecting and just saying we're not going to give you that information? They haven't, to me at least, outright rejected. Um, I mean, sometimes they'll use redactions, and it's hard yeah, to yeah, say if that's sure. valid. And um, you know, I do think that there is validity in a redaction if something is like you know sensitive information. I think there can be a valid reason for redactions, but. Um, I've been seeing mostly it's the costs. Um, and yeah, so we just have like this back and forth and the way that chapter 13 of the Minnesota statutes around public records, it's, it has to be that, you know, the agencies are permitted to charge the actual cost. It can't be above that. And I mean, they're like, it's $45 an hour at 250 hours. And you're like, I, it's hard to, what, what do you come back with? for that without like a legal team. Um, so yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> is this a recent development? Um, and if so, is it in response to the articles that have been coming out around what's been found in the FOIAs and, and data data stuff? Or is it uh, or, or is it a longer term thing? Also, you know, there's been, a, it seems like there's been an escalation of violence and police in the last just like two or three months, like everything from like escalated charges, escalated bails as well, as well, and as well as like violent, you know, straight up violence. I'm, I'm kind of curious if there's a connection there, if y'all, if y'all, and it's probably just, you know, speculation at this point, but I'm kind of curious. Yeah, I would say it's speculation, but from my opinion, it, it seems connected and um, I'll let Will speak in a moment, especially about, um, you know, there was a, a law in North Dakota after his and Aline's work in large part, you know, to, to block uh, public records. So um, I can definitely say that Dakota Access Pipeline is used as a playbook um, for their response. And they are really worried about 
what what became public and a lot of the tools that were used there were public records. So the logic does tie together. Yeah, I don't know, Will, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, um, I would say it's speculation, but it's very informed speculation that you know they they are using the cost provisions in uh, in these laws um, as a way to suppress records. You know, basically, I mean, the problem is that these laws are kind of broken to begin with, and they aren't actually written with the idea of providing maximum transparency. Uh, they just happen to be the best thing that we've got for for trying to um, trying to um, shine a light on what governments are doing. Um, so, you know, one of the big problems with these laws is that they do have these cost provisions where agencies can charge, you know, so I think, uh, I think in Minnesota, it's up to $25 an hour to process records. And sometimes that means reviewing five emails per hour or something along those lines. So even if the email is like one sentence long, it's like, Oh, we just charge you five bucks to look at that email. Uh, and you know, um, if you're coming in to a situation kind of cold without without a real strong sense of what's going on, you need to you know file a broad request. Sometimes that means asking for a couple thousand emails, and then before you know it, you're you're looking at potentially spending you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars um, for requests that might not even yield that much useful information, right? Because you're you know you're trying to get in and and understand what's happening with your initial request and. And so, you know, these laws are fundamentally flawed and, and intentionally so. And so it gives a lot of latitude to agencies like in Minnesota. You know, also, you know, Charlotte mentioned North Dakota um, and, you know, various other places to, to suppress information, right? Um, so, you know, really it would be wonderful if there were tools that uh, went beyond the laws that we have now uh, to try to get information but in the meantime, you know, people like me and Charlotte and, and various others um, are able to use the laws in some cases, you know, effectively to get information. It provides enough of a tool that's still worth using, right? Um, but um, yeah, I think that it's clear that um, Minnesota, for political purposes, has a lot of agencies that are uh, taking advantage of the favorable parts of the laws to prevent information coming out about line three because they are sensitive to what that information shows and they're sensitive to the media coverage that they're getting. Um, and that's so clearly the case with the Fusion Center example that I mentioned, right? Or that we talked about, um, you know, uh, government transparency experts I talked to said, I've never, you know, like we've never seen something like this before. It's like a state agency saying they're not going to release records under the main public transparency law in their state regarding one specific construction project. Um, so just the specificity of saying, we're not gonna release records about line three, uh, you know, it's nothing else, it's just line three, it's, you know, tells you everything you need to know there, I think about like the political calculations that are going into these things. Now you said one member of the, Public Utilities Commission essentially felt like she was being extorted by Enbridge. Do you have any, are there, have there been any elected officials there who have been, if not allies, at least somewhat helpful or supportive in, in Minnesota? I don't know of any, um, <laughs> but I, to be fair, I don't follow like the Minnesota state politics right. on like a nitty gritty level. Um, 
So I just kind of like watch the key permitting decisions and see what happens and go from there. Um, I'm not aware of any though. <laughs> the question, Bob, was any public officials? Oh yeah, I mean, with, with things like FOIA requests, you know, I would assume yeah. that those eventually would work their way up through maybe the attorney general's office or something like that. And, you know, there's a there's a food chain, right? It goes up and down. I mean, if you sure. you know run into anybody who seems to be somewhat sympathetic, you you know, because I, I thought of that when you mentioned that one public utility commissioner who said she kind of felt like she had to vote for this. She was so pressured, and just wondered if you yeah. got any 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 support elsewhere. Right. Um, yeah. The uh, attorney general. I think that it is possible to appeal to the attorney's general attorney general's office when. Um, a records request is denied, but I don't know about doing that because of cost. Um, I think the law is written in a way that it's unlikely the attorney general would, would intervene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we haven't tried that. You know, maybe we should. Um, I'm just curious. You know, if, yeah. I, I do a lot of um, FOIA requests, but these are for hist history documents. And essentially oh, cool. the, way that, the way that they mess with me is they just redact everything. I don't know if I've ever been charged. It may have been like 35 cents a page for Xeroxing, but but I just get a yeah. lot of stuff that just is, is you know, white paper, yeah. which I is what I'm surprised. I figured that's what they would do. They would just give you empty sheets and say it's all redacted. So the fact that they're even going harder than that is, is yeah, definitely a chilling effect. Yeah. I will also say it feels relevant, like in terms of the political pressure and public officials speaking out against Enbridge, I mean, the financial pressure of line three is enormous. It's a $9 billion project and it's the biggest tar sands pipeline in the world. And so um, that's huge, you know, like Enbridge has broken every campaign spending record. It, you know, they routinely spend about, you know, like $11 million on campaign contributions. Um, it's an, so like people who go against Enbridge in Minnesota, they, you know, are really risking going against so many people whose financial interest is in this company and this pipeline. And that's a very big part of the situation with line three in Minnesota. Uh, just we're heading towards the kind of end of the hour. Um, one other question I've had, and I know, Will, you reported on a, a, a similar story in Oregon, maybe a year and a half, two years ago around the Jordan Cove pipeline. And I'm kind of curious um, if there's any indication that this is going to start happening in other, you know, other places, like, like, did, was there similar resistance to, you know, seeking information with the state of Oregon or, or in other, other states? Yeah. What I find is that, um, different agencies have different cultures around disclosing information under, under these, you know, state transparency laws. So I ran into a lot of barriers in Oregon also. Um, when I was filing Oregon uh, Public Records Act requests. Um, but then I also, you know, there were some entities there that were were better, you know, and did disclose records. So, um, yeah, um, I, I do think that there's a, a tendency uh, where clearly the oil industry and other, you know, police entities like the National Sheriff's Association, which you know, is a big uh, national police organization that's very involved in pipeline protests, always are trying to apply lessons from the, you know, how different uh, struggles went. Um, you know, after the Dakota Access Pipeline, sheriffs and 
Uh, other people trotted around the country. They led trainings for sheriffs and, and, and police in other places. You know, the code access pipeline um, frontline sheriffs also even went down to the border and, and trained border patrol cops on how to respond to protests. Um, they've trained, you know, emergency services personnel here in California where, where I am on how to respond to protests. Um, so there's this constant effort on their part to learn from, you know, what they have experienced in these different sites and, and, then, and then share the information, you know. Um, and so, sometimes they're pretty smart about doing that, you know. Um, they actually develop some useful useful lessons and apply those lessons in, in terms of how they're going to suppress protests more effectively next time, prevent unfavorable information coming out next time. So I do see indications that there's a concerted effort to prevent the release of unfavorable information about police through amendments to laws and things like that. Um, you know, with this new bipartisan infrastructure bill thing that's happening in Congress, uh, there's a provision in that bill that um, requires states to develop security plans for critical infrastructure, as they call it. And then one of the provisions refers to uh, not disclosing sensitive security information. Like it, every state is required not to disclose sensitive security information related to its security plan for its critical infrastructure. And the language is just just ambiguous enough that I could easily see any any state dealing with a protest like we're seeing in line three, using it as a justification to not disclose information uh, through public records requests. And um, you know, clearly these provisions in, in the infrastructure bill are basically being written by the fossil fuel industry, right? Um, and so, um, it seems like they they know that this is a problem for them, that public records laws are being used to, to reveal embarrassing information, and they are making some effort to patch up the holes uh, in, in the system. Uh, yeah, one last question. First, thank you both. This has <clears throat> been really you know, uh, great to, to get this information out. And for our listeners, if you're interested in this, we've been covering it extensively. We did two shows with Scott and Jay Conroy, who had been there. Um, we talked to uh, Representative Stop the Money Pipeline. We talked to Jessica Resnicek, who's currently doing, I think, eight years for doing illegal welding. We, we, we talked about Jessica. About Jessica, not, not with her. Yeah, right, right. Um, my last question, though, is when there's an, an actual like interaction, like that can be aggressive or violent, you know, rubber bullets or tear gas or is that still being done by the actual public police or these private forces are also doing that? Are they also using force and violence against, against these people? Has that been privatized as well? It's a great question, Bob. Yeah, in the case of line three, as far as I understand it, it's being done by public, public law enforcement being paid by Enbridge. Right, right. But still um, with the facade of a, of a public force. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's not like the Pinkertons and Baldwin Feltz guys in the old days are out there shooting people yet. Right. Yeah. It's 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 not quite like that at this point. Right. Um, obviously, the code access pipeline. <clears throat> there was the dog biting incident, for example, where private security unleashed dogs on protesters. Um, 
And so I think in the cases to go to there were more instances where private security were the ones actually brutalizing people. Um, but yeah, in this case, it's privatized public police um, who are the ones carrying out these acts of brutality. Um, my final question is, uh, a, a lot of our audience are organizers, water protectors, activists, and I'm wondering if you have any, either of you have any thoughts around how that movement, because you know it's a, it's a very vibrant movement right now around Line 3 and around other fossil fuel infrastructure fights. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on how our movements can like weigh in or participate or somehow support uh, some of the some of what you've been talking about like how how can they better help you know loosen up the FOIA laws you know that sort of thing um <clears throat> i feel like more people should be filing public records so i would love to see you know trainings on how to do them and you know i'd be happy to do them I, there's a lot of people who know how to do them they're pretty it's not rocket science to figure out how to do them but there is kind of an art to it um, so I think more, it would be great if more people could be trained in doing them um, and also sharing the information because a lot of the times we're all, we're not kind of moving out of this competi competition, kind of scarcity careerist model of, you know, publishing and, you know, advocating yourself and, and really sharing information amongst each, amongst ourselves so we can like better tailor requests and move them along, um, especially when they're trying to be blocked from the other side. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with what Charlotte just said about um, you know deprofessionalizing FOIA, making it something that more people feel comfortable doing. Uh, you know, in some ways, we're living through a golden age of of the use of these laws. You know, the the open records laws because of the internet. Uh, it's actually really easy to do you know to do this kind of work in to, in in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's challenging in that you have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy, you have to, you know, have a sense of how to ask for things, you have to have a sense of like what you can ask for and an understanding of the laws, you know, to really be effective with them. But at, at the same time, um, there's great resources out there to help guide people like the website Muckrock, which has like a huge archive of, of FOIAs people have filed and, you know, kind of a, a template for that people can use to file uh, public records requests and yeah, there's a lot of great investigative journalism, a lot of great just research that people are doing um, that the internet has has made possible. You know, and and in recent years, you know, I think that there's just been um, a lot of a lot more people using open records laws um, who have like no training, no background. I'm I'm like totally self-taught in this. I think Charlotte is largely self-taught in how to do this, also. Um, but yeah. I think that as far as strengthening the laws goes, um, I think that I would encourage people to, to track what's going on with the kinds of things we're talking about. And if, if there is a really screwed up law that gets passed, which I expect that, you know, some state will try to do that. North Dakota was was like moving in that direction and then they pulled back for some reason that it's important to respond and you know try to respond to the effort to suppress information with a push to strengthen the laws instead. Um, because they are a valuable tool that we have. Um, there's not that many tools we have that really are about equalizing power between us and, and corporations and government officials. And you know, this these open records laws are one of those things. 
again, thank you very much. We'll put all that information in, in the show notes as well and encourage people to continue to follow uh, Will and Charlotte's work. Yep. I uh, want to thank you, Will and Charlotte, for uh, joining us today. Uh, folks, we've been talking about Line 3 and the police state and ways in which we can better take them on. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com backslash green red podcast and become a recurring donor or make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button. And then also check us out on all of your favorite me social media channels because we're on all of them. We have great game, at least on Instagram, if not everything else. Uh, and everyone else out there, take care, stay safe and misbehave and make a lot of trouble. <laughs>